What's up, everyone, and welcome to Stage 1, Chapter 1, Episode 1, the inaugural episode of the Video Game Mythos Podcast. In this podcast, we aim to bring you something just a little different than all the other video game monotony that floods the podcast market. In Video Game Mythos, instead of us just talking about video games, we reach out to the listeners, they recommend a video game character, and then we take that character and split them wide open and spill their beautiful backstory insides all over you because you're a dirty little nerd and you will love it. So, just exactly how do listeners recommend characters for us to rip open and dive into? Well, let me tell you about a couple things that will help explain that. Video Game Mythos is a podcast that is owned, managed, and operated by 13 Palm Trees Podcast Productions, which is a podcasting company based out of West Virginia. Video Game Mythos was super stoked to sign on with them as they have a super awesome production team, and they always end up making their stuff sound crazy good. They were also kind enough to give me a couple avenues for you to send your recommendations. So guess what, fellow nerds? Here they are. You can email that recommendation straight to me at michael at 13palmtrees.com. You can send it via Facebook message to 13 Palm Trees Podcast Productions, or you can send it via Twitter to 13 Palm Trees Podcast Productions, or hit us up on Instagram at 13 Palm Trees Podcast Productions. Any way you want to get that to us would be absolutely fine. And the only thing that I require is a blood sacrifice. All right, well, maybe not that extreme, but I would like the name of your video game character, which game or series they are from, and why you think they would make a great video game mythos choice. Get creative and selective, because if they don't have much of a backstory or they just really won't be that interesting, they'll probably land in the honorable mentions section at the end of the episode, which is still fun to do. Although, on that note, if you pick someone that has a pretty solid amount of character fan theories and weird cult followings, I might be able to wrap something together and get it out the door for you. Who knows? So before we get started, a big shout out to Alex Butera from West Virginia for providing me some research, some bullet points, and the suggestion for this super fun character and episode of Video Game Mythos. Couldn't have done it without you. And with that, why don't we go ahead and jump into our first ever Video Game Mythos character. Oh, before we do that, I almost forgot. Just about every single episode of this show will be spoiler heavy, and as we think these games and characters are just plain rad, we don't want to ruin any experience for any of you. So if anything gets ruined for you, you can't say I didn't warn you. And now without further ado, this week's Video Game Mythos podcast character of choice is none other than the legendary, the helpful, the oh-so-annoying Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time companion, Navi. So what are the facts in our little bundle of light with wings? Well, there isn't a ton to tell, but like I stated in the intro, just because there isn't a plethora of canon lore and backstory readily available on the character doesn't mean we can't dig into the weird parts of the internet and make it interesting. Navi is a fairy who was spawned by the Great Deku Tree in order to aid Link in his daunting quest to save Hyrule. Initially super frustrated with her task, as she had to literally headbutt Link multiple times to even get him out of bed, it's understandable why she would be so frustrated with her tasking from the get-go. Now, a little background. In the Kokiri Forest, which is pretty much Nintendo's version of Peter Pan's Neverland, the children of the forest, the Kokiri, never grow old. The guardian of the great forest, the great Deku Tree, is a huge magical tree that watches over and protects the forest from the persuasions of evil. When a new child is born or brought into the Kokiri Forest, when they come of age, they receive a fairy companion to aid them in all tasks of life. So that's a little backstory as to why Navi was assigned to Link. Early on in Ocarina of Time, there are plenty of little douchebag Kokiri kids that make it readily available to the player that Link is not actually a Kokiri child. And not to name any names, 
<coughs> Mido. <coughs> but no one likes that guy. Link is not a Kokiri. He is a Hillian who is separated from his parents and brought to the Kokiri forest to ensure his safety. But anyway, back to Navi. As Link continues on his quest and relies more and more on Navi for guidance, the bond between them grows stronger and they become pretty close friends. As the game progresses, Navi keeps Link in check, tells him where he's supposed to go, lets him Z-target enemies, and even spots out weaknesses for Link to exploit in battle. Pretty rad little fairy. She does this all the way until the end, when Navi helps Link and Zelda fell the mighty beast Ganon and bring peace back to Hyrule. With peace restored, Navi and Link are brought back to the child timeline by Zelda so they can regain the seven years of lost time. When they reappear in the Temple of Time, Navi bids Link a final farewell and she flies off through the window of the Temple of Time, never to be seen again. Navi's appearances are very slim in the Zelda universe, spanning Ocarina of Time, obviously, referenced in Majora's Mask, seen in the Hyrule Warriors series during the Ocarina of Time storyline, the Legend of Zelda manga, which isn't canonical, and the also non-canonical Link in the Portal of Doom. So on that piece of knowledge, yes, that is a real thing. It's a book, and the events of which take place after Ocarina of Time. But that's all the information I'm going to give you on it. If you want to look it up, give it a read, prepare to be disappointed. Well, that's a wrap on Navi, everyone. I'm just kidding. That's just the hardline facts on Navi. And guess what? Now it's time to get into the nitty-gritty stuff, along with a few theories about our magical fairy friend that might end up making you look at Nintendo 64 Zelda games in a whole new light. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Video Game Mythos Podcast. I wanted to take a couple seconds to tell you just a few things. First, we are aiming to bring you an episode of the Video Game Mythos Podcast every other week. And as time goes on, we will be expanding the scope of the show, bringing on guests and hitting on some different topics. So that's exciting. And speaking of exciting, let me tell you guys about something pretty freaking sweet. Video Game Mythos, even though we are brand spanking new, we have ourselves the best sponsor a podcast could ask for. Their name is Thunderprints. Thunderprints is a West Virginia locally owned, husband and wife ran screen printing company based in Morgantown, West Virginia. If you don't know what screen printing is, it's how they make those sweet designs on t-shirts and clothes and such. And not the cheap stuff that fades in one wash, we're talking high quality stuff. Every print is hand pulled and printed, not on a machine, and they have been slinging tees and other merch to bands, businesses, and the general public since 2009. They pride themselves on a personalized experience with every order as they get to know you on a personal level so they can assist you in crafting your design down to your every need. They love working, local and nationwide, and their work is super fresh. So if you need 100 shirts for your business outing or a dozen for your family camping trip, hit up Thunderprints. They are receptive to Facebook and Instagram messages, and you can contact them at facebook.com slash thunderprintswv or on Instagram at thunderprintswv. You can also check out their website at thunderprintswv.com. Another thing, if you contact them to get some sweet stuff made and you use the code THUNDER13, you'll get 13% off your first order. How rad is that? Thunderprints provides 13 palm trees with all of our merch, and it is always top-notch. So hit them up to get your stuff made today. And that's enough of me rambling. Let's get back to some theories about Navi.
So let's get a little outside of the box here, shall we? First off, I would like to admit something insanely personal, like super embarrassing. I've been an avid Legend of Zelda fan my entire life, since my first run through of Link to the Past. Ocarina of Time came out in late 1998, and I probably didn't get to play it until the 2000s because getting video games wasn't exactly my parents' highest priority. My depressing childhood aside, it's been about 20 years since Navi first traveled by Link's side in the release of this game, and I just learned, just a little bit ago, that our little fairy friend that guides you everywhere and gives you your directions name, Navi, is short for navigation. I know, I was shocked too. 20 years of my life, I feel as if I have been blind, and it just makes too much sense to let go. And while you are collecting the scattered pieces of your blown mind like I did when I first found out, I'll segue into a much less jolting theory. Although it was never stated or even remotely referenced in the games, it is believed by some that Navi actually had a substantial love interest in Link. Yeah, right? How would that work with the wings and the little ball of light and the... Never mind. Anyway, to give that theory some credit, Shigeru Miyamoto revealed in an interview conducted by Famimaga64 that Navi is actually jealous of Princess Zelda and has some serious feelings for Link. You heard it here, folks, straight from Miyamoto himself. Sadly, though, it is worth mentioning that this interview was conducted while the game was still deep in development, and Miyamoto makes references to a number of other things that ended up not being entirely accurate when compared to the final game product. Ah, <sighs> poor little lonely Navi. Hang in there. You'll find someone. Or will you? Here's where it starts to get dark. As I mentioned before, Navi leaves Link rather abruptly at the end of Ocarina of Time. And there really are a lot of questions that surround this super abrupt departure. And here are some theories that'll make your eyes rain. Since we just talked about the love interest angle, in the non-canonical Legend of Zelda manga, when Navi departs from the Temple of Time, she turns to get one final look at Link and cries out, Link, I love you. Lending further cadence to the romantic feelings theory, but also this. Navi may have left in such a hurry that she knew that a relationship between Link and Navi was completely unsustainable and unrealistic, and Navi could not bear the thought of dealing with the unavoidable rejection. It was better for her to cut ties with her true love and heal alone than it was to have to be around Link for the rest of her life and never get to be with him. Sad, right? Well, that's not the end of it. We touched a bit on Navi's creation, or the inception in the beginning, with the Great Deku Tree calling her into existence and assigning her to Link to assist him in his quest. And from this fact spawns a few questions. So how? So you know how when you catch a red fairy, you put them in a bottle, and then when you die, they come out, heal you, and then disappear? Well, it's theorized that once they heal you, they have fulfilled their purpose and they cease to exist, or die. While this is kind of a bleak outlook, the theory is mildly supported or backed up by the fact that the Kokiri kids, as they are assigned fairies, live forever. These fairies, in turn, will live forever with their immortal counterparts. So if the fairies live until their purposes have been fulfilled, maybe that's why Navi left, because she knew that she was about to die and she couldn't bear to let Link see her perish. This theory also explains why Navi was so agitated about being assigned to Link. She knew he was not a Kokiri child and was mortal, and she knew that she, in turn, would not live forever. Navi felt like her life had been cut short by divine chance, which is really sad. 
I know. I've been shattering some of your hearts, and there are those of you out there that are screaming, No, no, that's not true. It can't be true. Well, unfortunately, there is more to this theory. As Navi leaves and the game wraps up, directly following these events start Majora's Mask. The game opens with a cutscene stating that Link went on a journey to find a beloved and invaluable friend with whom he parted ways when he finally fulfilled his heroic destiny, which we can assume was Navi. So Link, desperate, goes searching for his friend, whom he doesn't know is dead, in the forest, and then encounters the Skull Kid, and the story of Majora's Mask ensues. Well, have you ever looked at the story of Majora's Mask from a different angle? Let's look at a high-level overview. The first place you visit in the game is Clock Town, which ticks ever onward in its countdown to the Carnival of Time, the greatest festival that comes each harvest time. As the people live out their everyday lives, running errands, making appointments, and setting up for the carnival, an ominous moon looms overhead, threatening to crush the entire world. The people here, upon being told that the moon is crashing into the world, are living in a serious state of denial. Muto, the carpenter, states specifically, You cowards! Do you actually believe the moon will fall? The confused town folk simply caused a panic by believing this ridiculous, groundless theory. The next place you visit is Woodfall. Here, Link encounters the Deku King, who is showing an immense amount of anger towards a young monkey that he blames for kidnapping his daughter and feeding her to monsters. After that, Link heads to Snowhead, where Link meets Darmani's ghost, who bargains and begs Link, As I am, I can only watch as Goron Village is slowly buried in ice. I may have died, but I cannot rest. So can you use your magic? The Soaring One also told me that you were able to use it. I beg you, bring me back to life with your magic. Next, the Great Bay. Link meets the dying Miku on the coastline of the Great Bay, where he learns about the guitarist's girlfriend, Lulu, and her missing eggs. Miku's passing would by itself be plenty of cause for grief, while the Zora Mask Link is able to assume the part-time musician, part-time hero's life seamlessly, as though he'd never left. This nonetheless leaves Lulu in isolation, gazing out to the Great Bay Temple from the outside of the Zora Hall. Her isolation reflects some serious depression. Finally, Ikana Valley. Within the Stone Tower Temple, Link battles the Garu Masters. Since the Garu are, according to their official description, emptiness cloaked in darkness, Link's duel with them as he climbs toward the light signifies the internal battle between light and darkness, as well as the triumph over the same emptiness associated with his twin selves. By accepting and overcoming the grief associated with that emptiness, Link demonstrates that he has found himself, his true self, and that is enough. Did you happen to pick up on what I'm laying down here? The words I stressed? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance? What are these words? Well, those are the five stages of grief. That's what Link was feeling because he had to go on this journey to come to terms with what he knew from the beginning. His long-lost friend that he went on this search for, his companion, Navi, was dead. All 
All right, everyone, that was Navi. Didn't realize that it was going to be such a roller coaster, huh? Yeah, me neither. Now, here are some less depressing honorable mention backstories for you all. And to start with, Diddy Kong from the Donkey Kong series. During the development of Donkey Kong Country, Diddy was originally conceived as an updated version of Donkey Kong Jr., DK's son. Not liking the radical changes that Rare had made to Donkey Kong Jr., Nintendo told them that they could either use Donkey Kong Jr.'s original appearance for Donkey Kong Country or rename their new version of him. Deciding it was a lot simpler to rename the character, Rare decided to name this Kong Diddy because in some parts of the UK, the British-English slang Diddy also means small. Uh, It is worth mentioning, however, that in other parts of the UK, a Diddy is a slang term for a female breast. Next up, Chell from the Portal series. Information revealed in Portal 2 implies that Chell was the child of an Aperture scientist because one of the Bring Your Daughter to Work Day science projects is signed by her. The project board mentions an ingredient from Dad's work, also with an Aperture logo illustrated nearby. According to the psychological profile in her personal file, Chell is abnormally stubborn and refuses to give up no matter how daunting the challenge. Due to this, she was rejected as a test subject, but Doug Ratman altered the testing order, having correctly guessed that Chell's extreme tenacity might allow her to defeat Gladys. Chell's test subject application form states that she refused to answer the essay question and instead answered in binary. That binary can be translated to the widely known nerd phrase, the cake is a lie. And last but certainly not least, the Big Daddy from the Bioshock series. Big Daddies are heavily genetically spliced human beings whose bodies were directly skin grafted into suits of armor. Thanks to a series of plasmids being stripped from them, they are devoid of humanity and free will. Big Daddies roam the underwater dystopian city of Rapture, mentally conditioned to protect the Little Sisters, which are little girls who harvest a substance called Adam from corpses. Also, while on the Bioshock note, stay tuned because we have more on that front later. Alright guys, thanks for listening to the Video Game Mythos Podcast. Remember, if you want to hear all about your favorite video game characters and get a shout out from yours truly, hit us up on Facebook at 13 Palm Trees Podcast Productions or on Twitter at the same handle. And guess what? If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, hit that like button, give us those stars, and leave a killer review. We can't overstate how important good reviews are to us as it helps us with discoverability, keeps our podcast on the air, And ultimately, the best way to help us out is to tell a friend about the podcast. Because what is better than reveling in nerd culture with your bro? And yes, dudes, chicks can also be bros.